The first reading is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The second reading is from the book of John, chapter 2, commencing at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his type disciples believed in him. Uh, good morning, church. It's terrific to be here today. And what I'm feeling each week when I come up here is a little bit more like paradise. Uh, you guys have lived here a lot longer than I have and I had much joy up here no doubt understand why I might be thinking it's paradise. But certainly it's good to be back and it's good to be uh, able to spring to you today uh, God's word yet again because is that not life to our souls, permanent life to our souls. So I hope you've got your Bibles open or your, your tablets open or however you read your Bible these days um, to John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. Uh, can we bow our heads please? Almighty Lord, we just thank you that you've never left us unattended, that you've never left us, Lord, um, in a place where we can't find you and you've drawn us to you, which is why we're here now. We pray, Lord, that you'll continue to write your word on our hearts and that you'll quicken our Holy Spirit, your, our spirits, 
by your Holy Spirit to your truth. Not only that we may know them and enjoy them, but we may go and lead a life that is glorifying to you. Amen. So for those of you who are astute, you may have realised we skipped a little bit uh, from the end of uh, the prologue last week to John chapter 2 today. What I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to recap what we did last week and also uh, just give you a thumbnail sketch of the little pieces of uh, detail that we missed from the end of chapter 1 with beginning chapter 2 this week. So I want to say though that today's passage is as much about grace as it is the miraculous and the identification of Jesus. Today Jesus does a miracle, it's his first, and this miracle, I'm led to believe it seems correct, is for humble, obscure and unnamed poor people. They aren't named in, in this story, they do run out of what they need. Cana is not a place uh, that is prevalent in the Bible or any other sort of a, um, a historical document. And there are a few other little hints that help us understand that what Jesus was probably do, was doing here was probably for people that were a little bit needier than maybe the circumstances would have presented in this story. So God's priorities are not ours, are not ours. Because God starts, Jesus starts with people you might normally think is a place to start doing miracles if you wanted to be known as the Messiah. But nevertheless, we get used to Jesus because his priorities are not ours and he does things in uh, certainly opposite ways many times in life. Now there's a depth to this first miracle of Jesus that rivals the prologue. Now we did not uh, delve deep into the prologue last week, and nor shall we delve deep into the depth of this first miracle this week. But next week we're going to start tying some things together and I hope that you'll be able to see more of the depth as we continue to unpack God's word in John's Gospel. Remember, please, that John's Gospel was written um, to teach us about who Jesus is. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you, have life, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of this book. That's the purpose of how John started and it's the purpose behind chapter 2. So, we get Jesus right when we read John's Gospel, not that we don't from other Gospels, but that's his particular stated purpose. Now, just to recap on last week, we studied the laws of the earth to understand how the world was made and to understand uh, uh, why it continues as it does. But we neglect the legislator. Who's more important? He who made the laws or who studies the law. Isn't it wrong that we neglect the legislator? Now, enlightenment is in Jesus alone. He is full of grace and truth. And anyone who knows Jesus knows the Father. They're the things we were pulling from the last week. Now, John also testifies to Jesus in verses 27, 29, 32 and 35. I'm going to read them to you briefly from chapter 1. John says, he is, or John the Baptist says, he is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. Now, that's a big hint, isn't it, into who we think Jesus is. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. 
verse 32. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except for the, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man whom you see the Spirit came down on and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, John the Baptist saw Jesus <clears throat> at his baptism. Don't doubt that this Jesus is the Son of God because he's seen the supernatural around him already as well. And in verses 37 to 39 in, chapters, in chapter 1, I just want to pick these up too. Uh, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and said, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teachers, teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Hey, how smart is somebody that says to Jesus, can I come with you? How smart is it that says someone who says, not only can I come with you, but I want to stay with you? I think that's a lot greater metaphor than just this one event of saying to Jesus, Lord, can we come beside you too? Lord, can we stay with you? These guys knew who Jesus was right from the start, didn't they? And they weren't backward in coming forward. And then in verse 49, at the end of chapter 1, Nathaniel, Nathaniel declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. He's got that, he's nailed it, he's, there's a lot more to learn about Jesus, but he's got Jesus right. You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. No wonder John puts this detail, this small detail, this minute detail in chapter 1, because chapter 1 is still teaching or what he wants to teach from chapter 20. So these guys are all introduced to Jesus that they may know him correctly in the end of the chapter, in, in the end of chapter one, sorry. And by chapter two, we've got a fairly strong picture un, unfolding. Now, what I want to do just a, for a brief moment is I got a little bit distracted and we might get a bit more distracted yet um, during the week. But it's fascinating uh, trying to understand the ancient wedding customs. Uh, Virgins marry on Wednesday, widows marry on Thursdays. Don't know why, that's just the way it worked. Uh, the, the wedding uh, ceremony was a lengthy affair and could take up to a week. No wonder they ran out of wine. And uh, there's a strong element of reciprocity in these feasts that they put on at, at weddings. Uh, it's not just a social obligation, but it's a legal obligation. If your guests had previously entertained you, you were legally bound to reply with an equal, if not better, event. And it is likely that this couple were poor. So they were in a difficult position to repay. Now, what we've got here in Chapter 2 is the first presentation of a supernatural Jesus. Please note, Jesus began his ministry as he intended to conduct it. He did it with the lost, the least, the last, the lonely. Hasn't Jesus always had a, a heart for those that other people don't have a heart for? And this wedding was a humble affair with obscure and unnamed people that he performed first the miracle for. 
excuse me while I hold my notes. Now, if we go down to the chapter, it's the end of uh, the story here of changing the water into wine. Verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Again, this is about getting Jesus right. And they saw the miracle and they put their faith in him. Water was present at this festival, at this banquet, at this feast, at this wedding. Water was present for the continual Jewish need of cleansing. But the Jews also had a, held the belief, that, uh, held a statement of belief, I guess you'd say, no wine, no joy. So as soon as uh, wine had, uh, had uh, dried up, had been drunk, there was going to be little joy around this feast. So Mary, his mother, approaches Jesus. She, and um, she asks him, they have no more wine, verse 3. And he replies, dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. So Mary approached Jesus because she knew he was already supernatural. He was the son of God because he was supernaturally con conceived. He apparently responded what I believe is quite acerbically to her. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Verse 4. Well, that's how I take it, and I think that's how us Westerners took it, but it's not common for, for, for that time. What Jesus does is way, the way he elsewhere in scriptures addresses his mum. So it, wasn't, it, was a common, it was a common address he displayed to Mary, not a discourteous address. And I can't see that he would want to be discourteous to his mother. But nevertheless, that when we read that in English, it seems a discourteousness, but it's not. Let me encourage you with that. So what Mary has done, Mary has exercised faith. First, servants then went and exercised obedience. Now that's the formula for miracles. Faith plus grace are handmaidens that serve each other. Faith plus obedience leads to miracles. Now Jesus showed grace, Mary showed faith, and they are two handmaidens that will come together and serve each other, which is what exactly happened here. And how many times have we shown grace to people out of our faith to serve Jesus? Faith, faith and grace are handmaidens. Or you could call it another way, they're, they're bed partners. They just go together. Now I want to throw in at this point a quote uh, that you'll probably hear reasonably often from me, that the impossible is available to those who rely on the eternal. Can we get that correct, please? The impossible is available to those who rely on the eternal. You see, that's what his, uh, his mother was doing. She was asking for the impossible. She was relying on he who is eternal. So it was available to them, to the people at the wedding, to be able to receive the impossible because there was faith and obedience there together. Jesus creates an abundant supply of wine. This was his practice to oversupply. <coughs> Excuse me, as he did in the feeding miracles. He is oversupplied and he is unhindered in doing so. He doesn't give out of a limited supply. He gives out an, gives out of an eternal uh, fullness of grace and eternal fullness of truth. 
So he can give more than it's needed and it's not hard and his grace does that. Grace is just like that. It oversupplies and is unhindered in doing so. Now let's have a look at verses 6 to 10. Nearby six stood six, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Get that, note that, fill it with water and fill it to the brim, so that no one could later then say the wine had been slipped in because the, the, the jars hadn't been completely full. That's recorded in some distinct detail. Verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So these servants did, they, did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realise where it had come from, through the, uh, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine till now. Jesus creates this abundant supply. And note, he's a humble Jesus who takes no credit and he's not sought credit and nor is credit given. He is just remote in this, uh, in this supernatural activity when it comes to the master of the ceremony who did not understand what had happened. He was just rejoicing inside. Now, there's a verse from Philippians that I find very helpful. God supplies the needs of people according to his riches in glory. He supplies the needs of people according to his riches in glory. Jesus is no cheapskate, nor does he merely meet the quantity of the need. We must reflect again on one, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace, full of truth. So full of grace means he's not going to give just enough to do the job. I'll give him and then I'll keep the rest for myself. It means he gives it over an abundance of supply. Why? Because he simply can. He's no cheapskate. And that's what he does here for this wedding. So we must reflect upon this nature of our good Lord full of grace and truth. Now, what we're going to do is take a diversion, but it's a legitimate diversion, as you'll see soon, and we're going to discuss further next week. So what's happened in this passage, they had the old wine, and now they got the new wine. Wine, new wine, is a significant theme in the Bible, uh, particularly in the, in the New Testament. Now, new wine occurs 46 times, those two words, new wine, occurs 46 time in, times in the NIV. I didn't look at any other translations uh, to find out how many times, but it's, it's, in, it's a repeated theme throughout Scripture, 46 times. Therefore, take note that new wine is something that's an essential that Jesus talks about and we'll talk more about next week. Mankind is accustomed to drinking old wine, not that I drink at all, but I hear it's the best. But here what Jesus does is he says, or the, the master says, that the new wine is better than the old wine. The wine has to be tasted and you find that it is better. Now there's a divine axiom in Luke 16, 15, a divine rule that's worth holding on to. 
what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Now that means that the priorities that God holds are quite opposite to the priorities we hold. Now this is shown in the whole sense of new wine because the new wine is better than the old wine. Although anyone I've ever spoken to who knows that I either about wine, um, just, a, just a tiny bit about wine is telling me that the wine that is old tastes better than wine that is new. So what Jesus is again doing, he's showing here that what is highly valued among men is not highly valued of, uh, amongst God. He's reversing the order of life. The things that we accept as good, he doesn't necessarily accept as good. And I think that's worth holding on to because his priorities are not our priorities. And if I start to grasp in my mind that I want to follow divine priorities, I'm going to be giving up a lot of things that I think are pretty darn important. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So we must learn to hold the things of this world lightly. They are finite and, and uh, detestable to God. Noah got in trouble two weeks ago, didn't he, when, we, uh, when I first started off here and we looked at uh, Noah and the flood. He got in trouble because he liked the new wine of restoration and he got drunk on the new wine of restoration. His priorities had seemed to slip away from God's priorities. So even new wine can get us into trouble. So we need to be careful. But it's new wine that the good Lord made here. Another aside. People often find refuge in wine, don't they? People find refuge in gambling and a whole in, in an immorality and a whole stack of things that we think are good for that time. Our judgment says, I need this, so I want this now. I value this time with the bottle, for instance. And God's saying here, Jesus is saying here, no, that's detestable in God's eyes. You're valuing things that are going to hurt you. You're not valuing things that are going to last with you and stay keep you strong. The Bible contains some very strong teaching on this. Um, the writer of Psalm 52 says, See the man who will not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. He sought re refuge in his own destruction. Or you could put in that, so that, in that verse, see the man, woman, who would not make God their refuge, but trusted in an abundance of alcohol, trusted in an abundance of gambling, trusted in an, in an, trusted in an abundance of immorality. And so that list continues. Because your sight, your, what you're doing is you're seeking refuge in that which will destroy you. So if I understood the thing I was seeking refuge in, which makes me feel good at a transitory point, was actually going to destroy me, I might be smarter about changing what I value, might not. I might be smarter about where I turn. So that's just a little aside. God's priorities are not ours. And that's why new wine here at the end of this uh, passage is welcomed above the previous wine that they had. Now, what I want to do is leave this concept of new wine now, but we're going to go back to that next week. So let's wrap this up. Let's tie it together. There are a few takeaways in this today, in this short passage from, uh, from John 2. Miracles are a small window into heaven. 
It's a gazing into a better place. It's a gazing into a place that is not bound by human laws. It's gazing into the place that is not into a place that is not bound by the physical laws of this earth. Number two, Jesus is the mistake reverser. He turns our liabilities into our assets. And I think that's got to be a great blessing for the people who are paying for this wedding, the people who are at the wedding, the people who saw went on. It doesn't matter if I've made mistakes, because even if I can't unmake those mistakes, God can reverse my fortunes. He will turn my liabilities into our assets. But gee, I've got to approach him, haven't I? The third takeaway today is when the divine son is obeyed, he changes the common into the choice. Water has become wine. The common has become choice. Water has become wine. What can he do with Jeff Taylor if Jeff Taylor just allows him to change Jeff Taylor into who he made Jeff Taylor to be? Likewise for each of us, isn't it? Now this Jesus will do for this Jesus will do for all who follow him. Through obedience, I who am common can become choice for his work in me. Now that's really good if you've ever uh, felt like you were a, a person had been rejected, a person that had been not welcomed, a person had been left out, a person who had been ignored, or if you felt you're one of the lost, the least, the last, and the lonely. Jesus turns those people, he makes what is commonplace into choice. He makes what is boring into the best. So please be encouraged because if Jesus is in your life, that's the very thing that he's doing. Regardless of how you were treated at school, regardless of how you were treated at work, live for an audience of one. Live for that divine approval. Well done, good and faithful service, servants. Because what he's doing with you, as he's doing with me, he's got to do it with me. Is he changes that which is common into that which is choice. We become more like the good Lord Jesus. Now, what I'm going to do, I haven't done this before really, but I'm going to throw a little bit of homework out there for you. There's a connection between verses 1 to 11 and the temple clearing incident, which we will get onto next week. So there's a break in the middle of chapter 2 between verses 11 and 12. Can you sit with your word this week and pray and ask the good Lord to show you what the significance is between or the, or the segue is between the clearing of the temple and the water into wine. Now, I can give you a hint um, that if you go to the book that I suggested by Leon Morris, Reflections on the Gospel of John, uh, uh, Chapter 1, have a look. Leon Morris hints at this connection between the two passages. He doesn't fully explain it, but he hints at it very well. So... I hope chapter two this week has started well for you. And can I leave this in your just in your in your thought processes? What's the connection between chapter two verses one, uh, chapter two verse eleven, and verse twelve? Because this whole word of God is inspired. The whole word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So His mind is in the flow of the text as much as it is in the words of the text. So I'll leave that with you now. Can we bow our heads in prayer? Uh, thank you, Lord, that you uh, haven't left us, Lord, without an understanding of you. Thank you, Lord, that you want to lift us up, not tear us down. Thank you, Lord, 
that you come to the weak and the humble and uh, as indeed Lord uh, you love us and you want us to be in that state so that we can receive from you and become more like you. Uh, Lord that you will touch our hearts with humility, that you will touch our hearts with weakness, that we may reach up to you and find strength in you alone. Amen.